Good afternoon. It's Friday the 16th of June 2023, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. I'm your host, Mike Robinson. Joining me in the studio today, Patrick Henningsen. Welcome to the programme, Patrick. Great to be with you, Mike. Uh, and by video link from Damascus, we've got Vanessa Bealey. Uh, we're going to get kicked off with the indictment of Donald Trump. First ever in history, a, any sitting US president or even former U.S. president hit with a federal indictment from the Department of Justice. In this case, it's an unusual one, Mike, because this is the front runner or the presumed uh, Republican nominee for the 2024 presidential election. So naturally, there are accusations of election interference here. Let's just take a look at what the charges are. Federal grand jury, in his, this case is heard in Florida charged President Trump with 31 counts of willful retention of national defense information, classified documents apparently, and six counts of illegally concealed documents and obstructed the Department of Justice's investigation, serious charges for the 45th president of the United States. So, you know, the reaction for this in the media, Mike, has been they've been tearing him to pieces. The Democrats are doing victory laps on CNN, MSNBC, Rachel Maddow, is visibly excited by the prospect of they finally got Donald Trump. He's finally a federal indictment with the DOJ. It's damning, they say. And this is this is the one. The walls have finally, finally closed in on Donald Trump. What do you? Uh, what's your reaction? Well, my question is: uh, Will this prevent him running? Or will it affect his campaign in any way? Uh, or effectively, does it have no impact other than the Democrats attempting to make political capital out of it? Uh, until such times, or should he ever be actually formally uh, found guilty? These are the good. These are the important questions, and that depends how fast uh, they proceed with this federal case. It could happen. There could be if it went to trial. We're talking about a jury trial mm -hmm. and things like this. So, if found guilty, what would that mean in terms of the disruption of the primaries and so forth? I mean, legally, he can run for president. But I mean, he, even selecting a jury for something like that would be an impossible task. Mike, I really, I'll, I'll go through the details of this, but. You just uh, you hit one of the important points there. So let's just take a look at the main argument here. And this is what the president himself had quoted uh, in his speech uh, just after the arrest. So this was a major media event, as you can imagine here. So Donald Trump's team, and this is before uh, a piece on Reuters, and this is about the same thing that I found is the most relevant passage here. So this is about the Presidential Records Act. They say that Donald Trump kept all these classified documents at Mar-a-Lago, and he shouldn't have had them, and he should have given them back to the National Archives. Well, here, this is from the Bill Clinton case, the Bill Clinton sock drawer case. This was the federal judge opinion in 2012 on the Bill Clinton case, and this was the final, in my mind, and President Trump's mind, the most important point. The Presidential Records Act does not confer any mandatory or even discretionary authority on the archivist. We're talking about the National Archives here wrote the U.S. District Judge Amy Berman Jackson uh, in that 2012 ruling. And here's the important point. Under the statute, we're talking about the Presidential Records Act, this responsibility is left solely to the president. So there it is. From a constitutional point of view, Donald Trump was the executive branch. He was president when he took the documents from the White House to Mar-a-Lago. So in, in that sense, as the executive, as specifically and explicitly delineated in the U.S. Constitution. Uh, he has the authority to have these documents, and he has the classification clearance to see these documents. Therefore, if it comes, that would be the instructions to the jury. What, what Does he have the authorization? 
Does he have the classification clearance? Both of those answers, Mike, would be yes. So they're going to they're going to file for a dismissal. That will be the first move by the Trump's legal team, either suppression or dismiss, dismissing this case. Right. I, I personally don't think this is going to go to trial. That's my opinion. I could be wrong. If it does go to trial, it's going to be an unholy legal, like O.J. Simpson festival of litigation, which Americans love. So the aim is just to keep the, the chaos going through the election and really an attempt to prevent him from ever gaining traction. More than that is to divide the Republican Party. Because the, the the national conversation will be uh, too much toxicity with Trump. He should step down. Ron DeSantis and these other candidates are perfectly viable. So so Mike Pompeo has come out to stab him in the back this week. He was his most loyal acolyte. Mike Mike Pompeo, Secretary of State, CIA director for a few minutes. He came out and basically put the knife in Trump's back this week. So that was the last of Trump's uh, cabinet loyalists that you thought were on his side have lined up with the establishment basically to throw him under the bus. Right. But guess what? What do you think the polls are saying uh, after this arrest? Uh, have they gone up or down? Uh, They've gone up. So this is the whole thing with Trump. Nobody can quite figure out. Now, the flip side of this, and we'll keep an eye on this, of course. This is historic, by the way. This has never happened before. So this is election interference, in my opinion and many others, and constitutional uh, scholars' opinion, that Joe Biden is using his Department of Justice, his attorney general, to knock out the Republican presumptive nominee during an election cycle. If this happened in Brazil, Mike, and it did... With Lula da Silva, what did they say? They said it was election meddling. Right. And the U.S. State Department intervened in Operation Car Wash as well. So, I mean, that happened. Mm -hmm. That's fact. So, on the other side of this coin, this story this week, so you don't get, the drama doesn't get any better. Uh, this is Joe Biden's $5 million bribery allegations here. The FBI apparently have evidence, which they are not making public, about Joe Biden receiving a $5 million bribe in Ukraine. And so here's uh, Congressman Comer here. He's been leading the charge on this. And uh, so you can imagine the shock, Mike, when they woke Joe up to tell him about this. Uh, so he hasn't commented on it. He laughed when he was challenged by the press. He just chuckled uh, as if nothing happened. So the, the Ted Cruz from uh, Texas, Republican senator, let's watch this clip here. I mean, the, so he's, he's interrogating the FBI. We'll see another clip later with the same uh, FBI assistant uh, there. And so watch this. This is an unbelievable dramatic exchange with Ted Cruz just laying in to the Federal Bureau of Investigation. Here we go. My office hears regularly from FBI agents and from assistant U.S. attorneys who are likewise concerned about the politicization and weaponization of the Department of Justice and the FBI, and this is profoundly damaging to the rule of law in our nation. Last month, a whistleblower brought to light the existence in the FBI of a report, an FD-1023, in which the informant alleges that President Biden and his family members engaged in a $5 million bribery scheme during his time as vice president. Deputy Director Abadi, is it true that the FBI has a report making those allegations? Uh, I'm not going to comment on that, Senator. And why is that? I'm just not going to comment on uh, information we received, investigations. Or Do you owe an matters. obligation to the American people to be candid about evidence of corruption by the President of the United States? 
This is uh, an area that I'm not going to get into with you, Senator. Well, I understand you don't want to, and that's why people are mad at the FBI, because you're stonewalling and covering up serious allegations of evidence of corruption from the president. Yesterday, Senator Chuck Grassley stood on the Senate floor and alleged that there are 17 recordings of this informant from Burisma, Ukrainian natural gas company. 15 of them are recordings, voice recordings of him talking to Hunter Biden. Two of them are voice recordings of him talking to Joe Biden, Deputy Director Abate. Does the FBI have 17 voice recordings laying out evidence of a bribery scheme? Senator, I'd add all, I would add also that uh, we've worked with the House Oversight Committee. Yeah, this is the, the Senate. We're the other side were... of the Capitol. This is the Senate. Do you have those 17 recordings? I'm not going to comment on any investigative matters, Senator. See, that's the problem. The FBI, and I've had this conversation with Chris Ray too, this is why you are damaging the institution. The American people have a right to know whether there is serious, credible evidence that the President of the United States took a $5 million bribe. And by the way, if it's false, Chairman Durbin just rolled his eyes. If Chairman Durbin were interested in the rule of law, we would have a hearing on these allegations. But of course, the Democrats don't want a hearing on the, these allegations. And to be clear, if the allegations are false, you know who could disprove them? Joe Biden. He could call for this to be released publicly. But the FBI is stonewalling. So pretty damning uh, accusations there. And this is why the FBI people are calling for the defunding of the FBI. This is the deep state, as clear as day right here. So they're protecting the establishment, protecting the president from a actual scandal. Think of all the hearings, the Mueller, uh, Russiagate hearings and all that, where they came up with nothing. And here you have evidence, which will corroborate some of this in a minute. But here you have actual evidence of actual corruption with all of those years in Ukraine when Biden was vice president and his son Hunter was on the board of Burisma. So, and totally stonewalling by the FBI. So right. incredible. So look, uh, it, we we uncovered and you know detailed a lot of this type of material in 2019. This is an article up at 21st Century Wire. This is one of our most trafficked articles on the website in the last couple of years. It's called Hunting for Hunter. Evidence reveals Biden, Burisma, Ukraine bond scandal tied to US firm by Sergey Bellos. So we worked uh, quite a long time on this. There, we also cross-referenced this. We double-checked with our uh, sources in Ukraine as well and in the United States to see if this was accurate before we published it. And it's got a lot of traffic recently. And let's just pull up some of the highlights on this here. According to charges filed by the General Prosecutor's Office against Shosevsky, uh, he's the uh, head of Burisma, they're the Ukrainian oligarch, Biden and his partners received $16.5 million for their services in regards to Burisma activities. And these, this apparently, and this was why there was an investigation with Viktor Shokin, Ukrainian prosecutor, because, Mike, because the money going into Burisma came from illicit gains through money laundering stolen from the Ukrainian government, which we'll show you in a minute. So Biden was given money that originated not from successful business activities of Burisma and not from any brilliant business ideas or recommendations. It was obtained by criminal means. And Joe Biden said, we need to fire that prosecutor. You've seen the clip, right? Everyone's seen the clip. Right. Uh, fire this guy. Are you, we're going to withhold your $1.4 uh, loan 
fire the pro and so they fired the prosecutor Poroshenko when Poroshenko was president. So and then beyond this, we'll go here and say the charges brought against Shoshevsky uh, that he is accused of legalization of money laundering of funds obtained illicitly by way of purchase through Franklin Templeton Investments of state bonds, Ukrainian state bonds, for the sum total of $7.4 billion U.S. dollars. This makes Hunter Biden's salary at Burisma look like pocket change. And we're talking about a massive sovereign debt uh, money laundering scandal involving the top people in the Democratic Party and Republican establishment. So, and finally, the beneficiaries of this scheme had first stolen the funds from Ukrainian people and then returned them to the country in the form of sovereign debt, which paid the bondholder a very high interest payment. This way, Ukrainian citizens were robbed twice and, in, and with the help of one criminal scheme with Burisma Holdings at the center of it, okay, and a 6 to 8% return on, on, on the interest. So this is a genius scheme, and pr pretty much everybody had their hand in the till on this. They were using Ukraine as an ATM machine during the Obama administration. They still are. They, yeah, they still are. They've, yeah. they've just changed this, the racket, right? So this was the racket during why Joe was vice president. So this, we, we argued in 2019, like this is the big scandal, and that the Hunter Biden Burisma salary thing, 83000 a month, is, is, is the cover. It's the false story to, to cover for the big story here. And by the way, so I've, this has been validated by uh, people very close to this investigation. In fact, someone who is deposed by the FBI on this very matter has validated the points in this article with us. So we, we have every reason to believe that it's accurate. And, and there's no one's ever come and, and challenged this in three years. I've never, and there's a lot of people that could have. They have no, haven't been fact-checked or anything. So, and let's, let's think of Franklin Templeton. That's the firm in America. Who else is uh, linked to Franklin Templeton? Well, look at this. This is Adam Schiff the leader of the Russiagate charge here. And we're looking at his filings here on assets and uh, campaign donations. Of course, he's big with BlackRock, Mike, as you can see. Uh, some dividends there on some funds there with BlackRock Holdings, various, uh, let's take a closer look at that. Yeah, uh, Adam Schiff and BlackRock. But this one's even more interesting. And it's this one, Franklin Templeton. So he's got a little bit of a investment there with Franklin Templeton. And so who is Franklin Templeton? Adam Schiff, leader of the Russiagate uh, uh, hoax. John Templeton Jr. is one of Barack Obama's biggest donors. Okay, and that's the son of the founder of Franklin Templeton. But it gets better than this. Thomas Denalin is chairman of BlackRock Investment Institute as of 2019. He is the biggest shareholder in Franklin Templeton Investment. So this scandal goes all the way up to BlackRock and the, the highest donors, that's, that's the real scandal here. And this is why they're going to use some of these smaller scandals, I think, and it's gonna die with maybe some small corruption investigation. And it will, I, I doubt they're gonna go all the way up to the sovereign debt scandal because that's in the billions. And it, this implicates, and BlackRock is in the rebuilding of Ukraine. They're deeply involved in a lot of the sort of other graft and grift that's going on uh, surrounding this Ukraine. Uh, conflict. So, uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, we, we will keep an eye on this story because hopefully the, the lid starts to come off it. Okay. Uh, well, let's move from one form of corruption to another. Uh, and uh, this is the uh, Alcus website. Uh, they do uh, geographic data and so on around the world. 
they recently published this article, uh, Unprecedented Reduction of Opium Production in Afghanistan. Um, and, uh, well, of course, why are we interested in this? Well, first of all, well, we'll come on to the British uh, involvement in opium production in Afghanistan in a second. But, of course, both in the United States and in the UK, we both have an opiate-related problem in terms of people dying as a result of heroin addiction uh, in huge numbers in both the US and uh, the UK, and particularly in Scotland. But anyway, uh, of course, this isn't the first time that we've seen a, an unprecedented reduction of opium production in Afghanistan, because if we go back uh, and look at the historical picture, of course, there was a, a, a historical low of opium production in one other year, and that would be 2001. What was significant about that, Patrick? That, that was right prior to September 11th. And the Taliban even got an award from the United Nations for reducing uh, poppy cultivation. So Afghanistan, historically uh, a major source of opium production. And in 2001, when the Taliban uh, took control, opium production in Afghanistan went to zero or as near to zero as it's possible to get. Uh, and lo and behold, no sooner uh, had they done that, then the West rides into Afghanistan and saves the day by restarting the uh, opium production. And you can see that immediately the following year it was back to the pre-Taliban levels uh, and increased all the way up to 2007. Then it uh, moved around a little bit as a result of uh, localized weather and uh, droughts and so on. But 2017 to 2022 were bumper years. And we'll show you that in a second. Now here's the UK connection, because if we look at the map of Afghanistan, uh, the green dots are the areas where the most, uh, the bigger the green dot, the bigger the amount of opium production. And it was mainly centered around Helmand province, of course, which was the area that the United Kingdom was in charge of. Uh, now, uh, here is uh, a comment from the OSCE, uh, and this is uh, Yuri Fedotov from the UN, uh, o o sorry, the UNODC, which is the uh, drugs-related uh, uh, organization with the United Nations. And he said that opium production worldwide, this is in 2018, he said this, has reached the highest level ever recorded by the UNODC. Uh, but if we then look at this, also from 2018, this is a special inspector general for Afghanistan reconstruction. Uh, he said, or they said, that our analysis reveals that no counter-narcotics program led to lasting reductions in poppy cultivation or opium production. Now, we've got to re really make this point because the UK was specifically tasked with dealing with eradication of opium and, and maintaining the, the, the eradication of opium through all the years that we were occupying that country. The UK was specifically tasked with that, and it not only failed to do it, in fact, as you'll see in a second, they actually encouraged the growing of opium through all that time, particularly in Helmand province. And, and I spoke to soldiers who uh, were you know, familiar with this matter, Mike, who served in Afghanistan. And, and what they said to me was that they, were, they did go out to burn crops and so forth, but they felt in hindsight that a lot of this was for show. Um, and other American uh, soldiers I spoke to said that it could have been a possibility if, if this if this farm wasn't paying its protection money or wasn't giving the U.S. or NATO a cut or whoever, that this was the speculation that they got. They were the ones who got burned in right. the kind of symbolic poppy uh, eradication photo op. Basically, there, there was uh, there was symbolic eradication, and all the way through every year, the United Nations publishes its World Drug Report, and they always commented on uh, the eradication very low levels, merely the cost of doing business, Patrick. But huge press coverage whenever yes, of, they did it. Of course, yeah. but let's let's look at this because this 
is a, a memo, a quote from a memo that was released by WikiLeaks in 2010. And the memo was written in 2007. It was written by John Walters, who's uh, from the US Office for Drug Control Policy. And he's saying this. And so first of all, confidential, not to be seen by foreigners. Uh, Walters met with uh, the uh, Commander International Security Assistance Force, General McNeil in Kabul, and separately uh, with Major General Van Loon in Kandahar. McNeil told Walters there'd been a lot of action in counter-narcotics, but little progress. And he was particularly dismayed by the British effort. They had made a mess of things in Helmand. This is how he was interpreting it. Uh, I'm going to suggest there's other ways to interpret it, but this is how he was interpreting it. Their tactics were wrong, and the deal that London cut on Musakala had failed. We'll come on to that in a second. That agreement opened the door to narco-traffickers in the area, uh, and now it's impossible to tell the difference between the traffickers and the insurgents. The British could do a lot more, he said, and should, because they've the biggest stake. Uh, so the Musakala deal uh, mentioned in that memo was an agreement with the Taliban. So the Taliban, uh, during the conflict, once uh, we were uh, actually in the country, uh, the Taliban did dip their fingers into the uh, opium pie because, of course, they're normal. Uh, they, they were raising money that way. So they weren't entirely clean on this. But the Mullah Kala uh, deal uh, was an agreement with the Taliban that British troops would pull out of key drug trafficking center of, of Mullah Kala in Helmand. And in return, the Taliban agreed not to attack international security assistance forces uh, in the region. Uh, but as the memo says, the result of that was that the uh, drug traffickers went straight in. I also want to highlight this quote from uh, the an Afghani MP, uh, uh, Nazime uh, Niazi, who said that as long as foreign forces, and she was talking mainly about the British at the time, are present in Afghanistan, the cultivation, production, and trafficking of drugs, drugs will continue in the country. Uh, heroin production labs in Helmand, which did not exist before, are plentiful and work openly. So, but here's the thing. Uh, at the same time, this is from 2013. Uh, this is the Oxford Mail. At the same time, farmers in the UK, and in this case, it was four uh, farming conglomerates in the UK, in the Oxford area, were tasked by the British government to grow opium in this country because there was a shortfall in opiates available for the National Health Service. So what that demonstrates is that the opium production that was being permitted by the UK and encouraged by the UK in Afghanistan was in fact specifically for the illicit drugs market because we could have used that opium. We could have paid the farmers in Afghanistan for opiates for health service use across the world. But instead, no, we chose to grow opium in the UK to meet that shortfall. And and so so anyway, get but it. Let me just one more comment. Yeah. So other provinces, Mike, and I, I had spoke to a Paramount chief uh, years ago when I did a documentary on this very subject, and he said that uh, the, the, their Loyajurga style of government before, some of the provinces voted no poppy cultivation among all the chiefs of the different tribes, right. Pashtuni tribes. And he said that they, they made the switch to onions and other sort of cash crops rather than opium. And he said this was done completely without any Western negotiations, without any UN or NATO involvement. They did it themselves. But after the invasion of Afghanistan, uh, it also destroyed the Loyajurga system, their system of governance in a way. And that's one of the problems uh, that they have. They're trying to impose a Western style administrative bureaucracy, democracy on Afghanistan. And they took away a lot of the tools that the people had where they could actually eradicate some of these things themselves through self-governance. Well, not only that, uh, it is true that uh, in Helmand province, parts of Helmand province in uh, the early 2000s, uh, the British military, who, as a, if you were as I said, were tasked with eradication, 
we're actually distributing leaflets to the local population saying, you know, if you get involved in opium production, we're not going to stand in your way. So they were actively encouraging opium, uh, the opium production to, to kick off again. But coming back to this Alcas report for a second, unprecedented uh, reduction of opium production in Afghanistan. They published uh, a couple of graphs. So this are a couple of graphics. So this is uh, opium production in Helmand province in 2019. And the, the pink areas are the main opium production areas. The green areas are wheat production. Uh, and uh, you can see that there's other stuff there uh, like orchards and uh, vineyards and so on. Uh, but as you can see, it, it actually grew in 2020. It was even bigger in 2022. Uh, but by 2023, uh, this is the picture now. So it's completely gone in the matter of years since the withdrawal from, of the UK and the US from Afghanistan. Uh, opium poppy production has completely gone. So what has the reaction been in the West? Well, let's have a look at this first. This is uh, the United States Institute for Peace. <laughs> the Taliban's successful opium ban is bad for Afghans and the world. So it's bad for Afghans and the world that there's less heroin. That's the position of the United States Institute for Peace, because this is going to cause all kinds of uh, uh, increased migration and so on. Gets better. The BBC last week, it was disgraceful. Uh, they published this article. Uh, in, fact, in fact, this was the 6th of June, so uh, 10 days ago, inside the Taliban's uh, war on drugs and opium poppy crops slashed. They also produced some audio and uh, reports for the radio and so on. They, the BBC was apoplectic about this, really, really disgusted that uh, opium production has fallen to nothing. Uh, and uh, so they were very keen to promote uh, unnamed opium farmers uh, saying things like, we don't have large pieces of land. If we grew wheat on them, we'd make a fraction of what we could from opium. Of course. Right. So how about, did the BBC say, well, okay, don't worry about it, Mr. Opium Farmer. Uh, we will uh, come and help the country develop uh, and uh, build the country's uh, eco economy up. No, absolutely not. No, instead, they said they were very much pushing the narrative that the uh, poor opium farmers are going to be poor as a result uh, because they have to grow wheat instead. I think we should send the EU in, Mike, and do common agricultural policy subsidies. How about that? But quite possibly. And I'll just show this because this quote uh, was from 20, certainly 2010 or so. Uh, opium is money. Why should we waste time growing wheat was, was the message that was coming out of Afghanistan at that time. But I thought this was the best quote uh, ever. So let's put this on screen. This quote is from the BBC. The heroin industry is perhaps the purest example of capitalism on the planet. Now, that came from an article entitled, if anybody wants to look it up, it's in the first two or three paragraphs. That came from an article called, hold on to your hats, folks, because you're going to wet yourselves. What the heroin industry can teach us about solar power. Oh, my God. Right? And this is by the chief environment correspondent, Justin Rowland. Uh, roll it, sorry, and it was published in July 2020, if anybody wants to, to find that. But uh, the heroin industry is perhaps the purest example of capitalism on the planet. That's the message that the BBC wants you to have. So for, for 20 years, Mike, we've been getting skull plugged by the mainstream media saying the Taliban wants to, you know, they're, they're using opium to fund the terrorism. And that's why we're occupying and we need to domesticate these these savages because they're and they're putting heroin on our streets. That was the narrative for 20 years. And now the Taliban are in the opium's getting shut down and then they're all throwing a fit. Yes. Unbelievable. Yes. I don't know what to say about this. Vanessa, I, I, I'd just be very interested. I don't know if you've got any thoughts on this, but I'm very interested to see whether, whether you have. Well, I mean, my first thought is that the latest 
tranche of sanctions that have been levied on Syria on top of all the other multiple layers of economic pressure have been for the production of Captagon. <laughs> so, you know, which was introduced to Libya, introduced to Syria at the beginning of the regime change war by the West. And here they are. Nobody is denying that there is potential for some drug production going on. But why? Because in a war, um, black markets kick off. And because that's the only way to, to bring in any kind of revenue. But, but the incredible thing is, is the hypocrisy. And actually, the whole program today, I think, is focused on Western projection and hypocrisy. Yes, maybe that's why the Adam Smith Institute is so active there in uh, Syria, Vanessa, because they're all about promoting free market enterprise. And what's more free market than illicit narcotics, says the BBC says and the others. BBC. Yeah. Fantastic. Anyway, let's uh, move on to Ukraine then, Patrick. What's the latest? So let's just uh, look at some of the updates here. Well, just to follow on from where we were last week, uh, the, the counteroffensive is uh, underway here. And so we've got Ukraine along with NATO, US and Britain versus Russia. Let's take a look at this. You've probably seen these reports, Mike, over the last 48 hours. Major missile strikes in Odessa. So Odessa down on the southern coast of the Black Sea. This is seen as one of the most strategic points um, that will end up possibly deciding, you know, the end of the conflict in whatever shape it comes. So massive cruise missile strikes there. Russia's vowing to hit, quote, decision-making centers. And there are quite a few of those apparently in Odessa, and this is where they're launching attacks on Crimea. So in terms of Russia's security, this is a big priority. Now, we talked about the Karkovka Dam uh, last week and in previous reports. Um, there is some harrowing footage of what was found at the, at the bottom of that. I wish we could show that. We'd have time to get into the program. But they, they found, Mike, Nazi from actual Nazi soldiers, helmets and skulls from World War II uh, when, when the reservoir drained. I mean, it's oh, really? unbelievable. I mean, it's like something out of a, out of a film. Uh, but uh, let's take a look at the uh, hardware losses here. Uh, we talked about some of the losses last week. Now, this is from Rybar. Let's take a closer look at this. This is just during the first days, Mike, of the counteroffensive. Uh, 101 vehicles. This is based on open source data, looking and counting from different video reports and camera uh, shots that were available here. So you're talking about massive amounts of tanks there, armored vehicles, uh, Bradleys, MRAPs, Leopard 2 tanks, uh, pretty much everything that the West has been shipping over there, um, has been turned into scrap metal in Ukraine. So the losses are substantial. Russian MOD is putting uh, dead soldiers on the Ukrainian side, Mike, uh, latest report. They're putting it at uh, above 9,000. Now, this is just in the last, you know, 10 days, days yeah. 10 days or so. So in R Russia's also estimating 10 to 1 for every one Russian soldier that's killed, uh, 10 Ukrainians are. So we talked about some of the numbers last week. They're pretty shocking, um, and it continues to look really bad. But uh, And so here's how some of the Western press, this is Quest France, uh, and so what they're saying here, they're blaming this, Mike, on poorly trained uh, Ukrainian special forces here. We've translated this, obviously. This is a translation using Google Translate. Should we doubt the competence of the Ukrainian tankers sent to the front to take part in the offensive in the Zaporizhia Oblast? Uh, should we put the heavy losses recorded at the end of last week on the inexperience of the crews? Certainly well-equipped and well-trained, but not seasoned. 
15 Ukrainian tanks destroyed or damaged in south of Zaporizhia could bear witness to this. So, well, well, I mean, the, the point there is, as Brian was making on Wednesday, is they may be well-trained, but what are they well-trained in? Because, of course, the people that are doing the training have no experience of no direct experience of this type of warfare. So they may be well-trained, but they're well-trained in getting killed is, is pretty much how it seems. So they're getting textbook training, right, yes. in, in, by NATO trainers. Right. But these NATO trainers have zero experience in combined warfare combat. Right. In fact, the Ukrainian conscripts have more experience than the NATO troops do. But uh, hey, that might not mean anything. So a lot of these tanks, Mike, are showing up, uh, these Leopard tanks that were said to be game changers. Mm -hmm. They're they're appearing as scrap metal uh, uh, war porn videos uh, all over the, the internet. So so guess, Mike, there's who's going to come to the rescue to backfill the European tank stocks? Well, lo and behold, here's the Times of Israel. Uh, Israel plans to sell the vaunted uh, Merkava tank to two countries, including one in Europe. So Israel claims they're going to come to the rescue here okay. and save Europe. So let's just take a look at the performance of the Merkava tank. I have some highlights here. Uh, these are from uh, 2006. Uh, where is this from? These shots are from oh, South Lebanon, 2006. So as what Hezbollah did to the Merkava tanks uh, last time they saw any real combat, I, I'm just going to say, Mike, that the, what Russia is putting up in, in terms of artillery and uh, uh, Lancet drones and so forth uh, is a lot more su substantial than what Hezbollah had in 2006. So I don't think the Israeli tanks are going to fail, uh, fare much better than the Leopard 2s and right. the other German uh, and NATO scrap metal uh, models. So that's what's, that's what's going on there. So Israel's getting in, not to arm Ukraine, but to backfill Europe yeah. on the tank stock. So uh, this, this NATO has been really pushing this. We need to stay, Mike, till the, to the long haul. Like we need to go as long as it takes. So they're releasing some incredible propaganda videos. I don't know if you've seen any of these, but they're pretty shocking. This one, is, so we said we're not at war directly with Russia, right? That's right. what they're saying. But watch this video and tell me if, if, this, if this video is saying that or not. Go ahead and roll this. We will continue to support Ukraine for as long as it takes. We will not back down. Great video, right? It's impressive, right? We're just seeing more and more of this type of stuff at the moment. They're really ramping up the propaganda. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, according to Colonel McGregor, you know, in terms of reserves, Ukraine's got something between forty and 50,000 troops left at right. this current rate of attrition. How long is this war going to last? Yeah. A few months more? But NATO's saying, nope, we're going to be in for the long haul. Those F-16s will be there in 2024. Don't worry. Just hang on. So Anders Rasmussen, someone you're familiar with. Well, the previous uh, Secretary General of NATO. 
And uh, how would you rate him as a credible uh, geopolitical and dip diplomatic uh, commentator? Well, I get the feeling he's more competent than Jens Stoltenberg, but that's uh, on a sliding scale. That's still pretty at the far towards the not very end of that. I'm going to say more sinister than Jens Stoltenberg. Yeah. Here's what Anders, uh, Anders Rasmussen has said. Uh, again, we're not at war, right? That's we're, what we're told. We're not at war with Russia. Let's listen to Anders here in this, this uh, intimate sit-down interview he just did. Um, we should sustain uh, joint training and exercises uh, under EU flag and NATO flag, also on Ukrainian soil. We're speaking about billions of uh, dollars or euros, uh, but we're already doing that. Uh, I mean, this is a codification of what we're already doing. But we, extending the timeline for a very long period. Yes, but we're already stating that we are in this for as long as it takes. Ultimately, the only um, security guarantee, I would say the ultimate security guarantee would be for Ukraine to join NATO and be covered by Article 5. And polling has shown that... So he just said it. He did. He said EU and NATO flags on Ukraine soil. And he said NATO needs, or Ukraine needs to join NATO. That's pretty clear. And he used Ukraine as an Article 5 trap. Right. He said it. So that's the former uh, director, secretary general, right, of yeah. NATO. So th that, that's what's going on behind the scenes. Uh, whether that you know, manifests on the battlefield or not uh, remains to be seen. Now, take a look at this. International Atomic Energy Agency here. Uh, we'll go to this next uh, next slide. Um, they, they've sent their expector to the Zaporozhye nuclear power plant. And what they're finding, Mike, here is evidence of uh, howitzer uh, fragments damaging the cooling systems here. So this is uh, pretty damning evidence. So they've sent their inspection teams here. So they're firing at, this is evidence, they're firing at NATO, U.S. weapons, firing at the po nuclear power plant cooling systems, okay? Yeah. So this has happened. So why is this important? Because if NATO's looking for an entree into Ukraine, it would be an international incident of concern yeah. that would affect the, like a Chernobyl-type alarm that would affect the international community. I, I think that's why there's so much focus uh, with the counteroffensive by, by NATO around Zaporozhye yeah. to create an incident where they're going to say, even they'll pull the Chinese in, they'll pull everybody and say, we need international peacekeepers to stop a, a future Chernobyl type situation. God forbid if a dirty bomb goes off or if some other incident happens, okay? But, but I you, mean, once you start bringing in international uh, forces like that, whether it's under a peacekeeping banner or not, this becomes a very dangerous situation very quickly. It is, but the idea from NATO is to freeze the conflict along the existing lines yeah. and to, to be able to save Odessa, for instance, um, and keep that into Ukrainian or Western, uh, Western hands. Uh, okay, so uh, let's bring Vanessa on properly now. Uh, now, Vanessa, remember, right at the very beginning of the Ukraine conflict, uh, we uh, uh, had the blowing up of the Antonov, uh, the big Antonov aircraft, which was a major propaganda event at the time because it was the biggest aircraft on the entire planet. Uh, but uh, another Antonov uh, has hit the headlines and, well, Canada has just decided to steal it. <laughs> as uh, somebody on Twitter um, alerted me to it as rules-based theft. 
Um, so the headlines in, I can't remember where it is, the, the military something magazine. Force I index. can't read it off the screen. Yeah, thank you. Um, prized Russian airliner delivering COVID supplies seized by Canada to be handed to Ukraine. Why uh, AN124s matter to Moscow? And then if we actually look at the, the report, so Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau announced on June the 10th that his government would seize a Russian-owned AN-124 heavyweight cargo aircraft and that Ottawa would move towards forfeiting the aircraft to Ukraine. I mean, this is just extraordinary. The statement was made as Trudeau, whose government has been a leading supporter of the Ukrainian war effort since 2014. Interesting that they say since 2014. So are they accepting that the war started in 2014 um, with the US orchestrated coup? Uh, he made a surprise visit to Kiev. Owned by the Russian air carrier Volga Dnepr Airlines, the AN-124 aircraft in question had been chartered by the Canadian government and landed in Toronto on February the 27th, 2022 carrying rapid tests for COVID-19 from China. So effectively, it was on a, I guess you could call it a humanitarian mission. The seizure represents the latest by Western countries targeting Russian assets, with assets frozen by some estimates amounting to over 600 billion from both the state and private Russian firms and citizens. The bulk of these assets are expected to be appropriated by Western states, which will help the cover the costs of the Western world's tremendous investments in the Ukrainian war effort. So effectively what that means is they're stealing Russian equipment in order to pay for the war that they're waging against Russia in Ukraine. Uh, yes, incredible. Now let's look, move on to a, a, a disturbing uh, story here. First of all, uh, another propaganda piece. This is a little bit of video from the Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office that they put out a couple of days ago. And it's uh, uh, pushing again this narrative uh, that Russia is stealing children in Ukraine. Let's have a look at this. Over 19,000 Ukrainian children have been taken from their families and homes by Russian forces. Many have been transported to a network of re-education camps. One camp identified is 3,900 miles from Ukraine in Russia's far east. Once there, they are subjected to a targeted pro-Russian re-education program aimed at destroying their Ukrainian identity. These children must be returned. So that uh, little piece of propaganda from the Foreign Office, the information for that came from uh, the Yale School of Public Health in the United States. It was a report published in February of this year. Uh, it was uh, came under the auspices of the Humanitarian Research Lab at Yale School of Public Health and was part of the State Department-funded Conflict Observatory Program. So there's nothing in that that can be seen as being objective or, or anything. But now, uh, my first point here is that if we uh, look, the, the story is these children are being taken uh, out of Ukraine into re-education camps where they're having the culture re-educated out of them so they forget about their Ukrainian culture and become Russians. So let's contrast that with what uh, Vladimir Salo here, who's the uh, Russian governor uh, from the Russian government of Kherson, uh, said uh, just a couple of days ago. He's talking about uh, language. He's saying that everyone has the right to free choice of language and communication, upbringing, culture, and art. 
safeguarding people's cultural, spiritual, and historical values. This was at the time that he was announcing that uh, schools could consider three languages as being official languages, and they could choose which language they wanted to use. They could choose Russian, for sure, but they could just as equally choose uh, uh, Ukrainian. Uh, and the other one uh, was a Tartar, a Tartar language. Tatar language, sorry. So, so uh, the, is that a, an, a group of, or a country which is, or a, a, an oblast which is destroying Ukrainian culture? Well, no, absolutely not. Uh, and then we've got to take this into account. The Russian education ministry announcing uh, that students in the, new four, uh, the four newly joined regions, Donetsk, Lugansk, Kherson, and Zaporozhye, can study Ukrainian in schools, either their native language as their native language or as an additional court, course. Also, a new Ukrainian language test textbook was produced for el elementary school level. Again, is that uh, the culture of Ukraine being squashed under uh, Russian governorship? Well, clearly, look, beyond this, Mike, the Grey Zone, uh, Jeremy Lafredo, a journalist with the Grey Zone, debunked this idea that these children were being abducted. They were taken, many of the ones they're counting in that report you cited from Yale, yeah. uh, are being taken out of the conflict zones by their families to go to music school or kind of summer camp to avoid being in the firing line. Right, precisely. And so it was totally, it's been totally debunked. So d just beyond the, the, the broader cultural issue that you're talking about, the linguistic issue, right. um, there's no credibility at all in these accusations. So on one hand, the West is alleging that uh, Russia is stealing children to educate them. Uh, on the other hand, the Russians are alleging that the Ukrainians are stealing children to steal their organs. And this is from TASS, uh, Ukraine ready to pay West and people's organs for military assistance. Uh, and that's uh, uh, the foreign ministry spokeswoman, uh, Maria Zakharova, talking about this. Now, my first question was, well, is there any evidence, in fact, that uh, Ukraine has been involved in organ trafficking over the years? And actually, we can go back many, many years on this. Uh, so this is the European Court of uh, Human Rights, effectively. Uh, saying the case of the missing children, lost babies and corpses without organs, fuel allegations of trafficking in body parts in Ukraine. This has been, that was published uh, 14 years ago. This has been going on for decades in Ukraine. So Vanessa, uh, but this is a problem that happens in war zones. And, uh, you know, the same type of uh, um, situation has happened in, in Syria and Libya. Right, not only in Syria and Libya, and every you know, it's known as the red market. It's known as one of the most lucrative harvests of war. And of course, going back to Kosovo, Pristina, 1999, when the KLA, Albanian warlords and Al-Qaeda, were cross-border trafficking predominantly Serbs and predominantly children. And the same um, elements who were involved then are setting up organizations that are backing the Ukrainians in, in Kiev. And also, Mike, I just want to say, when I was in Russia to go to Donbass to observe the referendum, I went to the east of Russia and I went to uh, the various areas that were basically converted into holiday camps, let's say. They were previously holiday camps and they were set up as housing um, for the children and families coming in as refugees from the war in uh uh, Eastern, well, Eastern Ukraine then then became obviously reunified with Russia. Um, and I have to say, I mean, the care for these children was extraordinary. They were given three meals a day. They were fast-tracked uh, into citizenship if they wanted it. Their culture was being respected uh, through the education they were being given. 
they were offered ongoing psychological support for the trauma they suffered. And you have to remember that actually who was trying to prevent them speaking Russian was Kiev. Basically, the Russian language was being eradicated from school. So who was eradicating their culture in Ukraine? It was Kiev with NATO backing. I mean, the hypocrisy on this is, is absolutely insane. As I said, I went to the majority of the cities and towns in eastern Russia that welcomed thousands of refugees from Mariupol and from Donbass. So yeah. I saw firsthand how these children and families were being treated. But it's, it's just, it blows my mind. It reminds me of the stories coming out of Aleppo when I was standing on the streets of Aleppo and you had Owen Jones saying that Syrian Arab army were raping women and children and so on and so forth. And I'm standing there in the streets and nothing is happening. If anything, the Syrian army soldiers are being welcomed with open arms because their families are in the areas that they've just liberated. The inversion of reality in Western media, whenever there is a conflict that is being backed and funded and sponsored by the West is extraordinary. It's criminal. Yeah. And a lot of this critical race theory, it's like critical race theory. It's coming from Western NGOs, <sighs> Soros funded NGOs in Ukraine. They've been doing it for decades. Yes. And that's what's created this. this uh, Ukrainians didn't naturally have these massive divisions, like how they tried to do in Syria, as well as Vanessa said, the West are constantly trying to divide and rule. They've done that in, in Ukraine, and that sowed the seeds for this kind of animosity between these uh, supposedly different ethnicities. But really, it's uh, you could say this is a civil war yeah. in, on many levels. Uh, okay, uh, Vanessa, let's just, uh, just as quickly as we can uh, run through this, because mm -hmm. uh, sticking with the organ trafficking uh, situation, uh, a bit of a scandal has mm -hmm. developed in the United States. Yeah, so um, again, what is quite interesting here is while the West is kind of pointing their finger at Russia for, for effectively, you know, child trafficking, um, it, this is going on at, at Harvard. And Harvard has some very uh, spurious links, which we're going to look at now. But this story broke, I think, yesterday. So Harvard Medical School former morgue manager Cedric Lodge accused of selling stolen body parts. And he was indicted, I think, alongside uh, seven other people, including his wife. But if we look at what that involved. So prosecutors say that Cedric Lodge stole heads, brains, skin, bones and other human remains without the knowledge or permission, allegedly, um, of Harvard and removed those remains from the morgue in Massachusetts and transported them to his residence in New Hampshire, where apparently he sold them online. Uh, dean of the Faculty of Medicine, uh, George Daly, and Dean for Medical Education, Edward Hundert, put out a statement that we are appalled to learn that something so disturbing could happen on our campus, a community dedicated to healing and serving others. Well, let's just see how much uh, weight that statement carries. So let's have a look, first of all, at a foundation that was established in 1992. The founder was Pamela Freyd, her husband, Peter Freyd. Um, and Peter Freyd was accused by his daughter of sexual abuse when she was a child. The False Memory Syndrome Foundation was established with links to Harvard and to Alan Dershowitz, um, who is, has been a professor at Harvard for the last 50 years and who was featured on this site after he was accused of being involved with Epstein and sexual abuse. 
Um, and then if we look at the false memory syndrome, how flawed science turns into conventional uh, wisdom, it's worth noting that the foundation shut down in 2019, much to the relief of many people who suffered at its hands. And then let's see how it managed child abuse uh, accusations, particularly satanic child abuse accusations. So given the state of the mental health field in the early 90s, um, the foundation strategy consisted of a three-pronged approach, convincing the public that recovered memories of abuse were invariably false, recruiting prominent academics to serve as its public relations representatives, and punishing the relatively small cadre of therapists and academics who treated or who studied trauma survivors. Bessel van der Volk, a psychiatrist who was involved at this time, said that the lawsuits by the foundation had a chilling effect while not all trauma therapists were sued, many of us suddenly felt under attack. In fact, the trauma center, the treatment facility, which he had established at Harvard's Massachusetts General Hospital in 84, was forced to close. After he had testified as an expert witness, sorry, witness for the prosecution in several cases involving delayed memories of abuse by priests, the late psychiatrist Edwin Kassam, a Jesuit priest who then served as chief of um, MGH's psychiatric uh, department wanted him out. After all, he was an advisor to Cardinal, Cardinal Bernard Law, then the Archbishop of Boston, who was forced to resign a decade later when the Boston Globe published a series of stories showing that Law had protected abusive priests. So this is the first case uh, of spurious links to Harvard. Then you have uh, Ted Kaczynski's connection to MK Ultra. Um, he was basically the Unabomber who carried out a 17-year uh, psychopathic bombing spree that killed three people and I think injured more than 20, and he died um, a few days ago. As a 16-year-old student at Harvard University, he participated in an experiment linked to the CIA's UK, sorry, MK Ultra program. Um, and uh, Harvard accepted over $8 million in donations from Jeffrey Epstein. The university plans to redirect unused funds towards supporting victims of human trafficking and sexual assault. Well, how um, philanthropic of them, but let's just have a look at that. Um, Harvard University says in an ongoing review, the university found it had accepted over $8 million from Jeffrey Epstein. To date, the reviewer is said to have found donations by Epstein from 98 to 2007, predating his conviction as a sex offender, sex offender pedophile in Florida in 2008. The university says it plans to redirect 186,000 of an alleged 8 million in unspent funds towards organizations that help victims of sexual assault and human trafficking. But let's carry on. So in the Harvard Crimson in 2003, people in the news, Jeffrey Epstein. Then let's have a look at how much money Epstein had really contributed to Harvard. Uh, donated 30 million this year in 2003 to Harvard for the founding of a mathema mathematical biology and evolutionary dynamics program. Networking with the university's leading intellectuals, Epstein has spurred research through both discussions with and dollars contributed to various faculty members. So his connection to Harvard goes way back. And of course, Dershowitz uh, was the lawyer who sprung um, Epstein on, on the sweetheart plea and had his uh, sentence severely uh, reduced. 
I would recommend two books. First of all, uh, Whitney Webb's uh, book on Epstein, and this is one of her articles from the book, Leslie Wexner's Young Global Leaders, and that talks about Epstein's connections to Harvard. And I would also recommend, I, had, I didn't put a slide for it, but um, Stephen Kinzer's uh, The Chief Poisoner, which talks about MK Ultra and the inclusion of uh, Nazi Sidney Gottlieb and also Japanese torture experts to uh, perfect uh, the MKUltra project. Another connection to Harvard, Microsoft's Bill Gates funding Harvard scientists who plan to spray particles in the atmosphere to dim the sun. So Gates, again, has long-standing connections to Harvard. If, we, if you go to the Bill and Melinda Gates um, grant section on their website, you will see it goes back to 2008 pneumonia and pandemic preparedness, gender equality, global policy and advocacy, public awareness and analysis, et cetera. You can go through all of them. There are, I think, more than 400 grants that have been given to Harvard. So quite extraordinary, in my view, this organ trafficking project. I think this guy, Lodge, Cedric Lodge, is a full guy. Um, I would be very... Uh, let's say, um, sure in speculation to say that there is more behind this, that he is the front guy for this, that quite possibly more was going on that is being admitted. Okay, thank you, Vanessa. Okay, uh, if you like what the UK Column does, you'd like to support us, please head over to community.ukcolumn.org. There are options to help us out there, very much uh, needed and appreciated. Uh, please uh, also have check out the items on the UK Column shop. Uh, but uh, also you can uh, share any material that you find on the various platforms, especially ukcolumn.org, ukcolumnextracts.co.uk. Uh, an event took place yesterday, Patrick, a NoDonato event. Yeah, good, a good organization here. Uh, this is hosted by Chris Williamson, a former MP uh, from Derby, who was kicked out of the Labour Party. Um, and so this was especially, uh, there was a great panel here. Obviously, everyone knows George Galloway, Chris Williamson, but Kit Clarenberg gave a really... Uh, great presentation on what happened to him being detained under the Terrorism Act and, and, the, and the ramifications uh, of that as well. So that's available on No to NATO's YouTube channel. We also find it on their Twitter feed uh, and other, all their other media outlets as well. So really good discussion and great, uh, great contri contributions by all the, all the panel members. And I spoke, uh, I was honored to be able to share the stage with, with those gentlemen as well. Okay, thank you for that, Patrick. Now, Vanessa, we're going to end then with uh, an interview that uh, Robert F. Kennedy gave uh, discussing, well, amongst other things, Israel. Yeah, um, this was sort of quite an extraordinary 12 minutes of interview. I do recommend that people go and watch the, the whole uh, interview, which covers Ukraine and, and COVID and a number of other um, hot subjects. So this was Glenn Greenwell talking to um, Robert uh, Kennedy Jr. about uh, Israel. And of course, it's come to light fairly recently that Kennedy is a, is a staunch um, Israel supporter. <clears throat> he put out um, a tweet in support of Roger Waters, you are the global hero, Orwell had in mind when he said in a time of universal deceit, Telling the truth is a revolutionary act. Um, and then he basically deleted the tweet, which caused uh, some consternation on Twitter and a lot of questions being fired at him, um, not least by um, Pastor Cradula of um, the Convo Couch, who asked him publicly 
and he basically said um, that he supported Israel uh, and that was one of the reasons that he took it down because he couldn't agree with Roger Waters' stance on Palestine. So let's have a look, if we can, at the first uh, section of the interview. I cut it into um, short sections so people can get an idea of what he says. Me endorsing him uh, felt like I was buying into that, um, you know, into into something that was that you know was abhorrent to me. I really disagree with his. I think Roger, like many critics of Israel, first of all, people who criticize Israeli policy should not be characterized as anti-Semitic. But people who apply a different standard to judging Israel than they would to judging an Arab country, um, I think then that you've crossed the line there. And I, I do think that Roger does that. You know, I've now looked at some of his stuff and I think, you know, I like I said, I do not think people who criticize that that people who criticize Israel policies should not be called anti-Semitic. But I do I do think that many people are applying where Israel's critics are applying a double standard. <laughs> Uh, well, look, I, I want to, I want to, Vanessa, I want to keep the, the majority of the conversation on this to the extra. But I mean, you know, the first point there is uh, applying a different standard. But Israel is supposed to be the democratic uh, nation within the well, Middle East, on. so so it's got a, it's, it's, double, it's setting it's a, a it's setting a different <laughs> standard for itself first, isn't it? Well, hang on, Let, let's have a look at this double standard. Iraq was obliterated in the second Gulf War on the basis of having weapons of mass destruction. Israel has weapons of mass destruction. Israel bombed in 1981 the Osiriac nuclear Iraq. I mean, this is quite extraordinary, double standards. The double standards apply to Israel consistently when Israel commits ongoing crimes against Palestinians and against sovereign nations, the bombing of Syria being one example, of course. But anyway, let's look at the, the very next um, short clip. And to Israel, I visited specifically um, Palestinian settlements within Israel and in, uh, however you want to call it, West Bank or Judea and Samaria. I've been visited, I've spoken with government officials. <laughs> Did he really just say Palestinian settlements in Israel? Am I still here? Yeah, you're still there. Yes, you oh, did. Oh, sorry. Um, I mean, you know, this is quite extraordinary. In fact, having watched this video, I have to say that this is probably one of the most pro-Zionist, blatantly pro-Zionist presidential candidates that I have ever witnessed. I mean, even Owen Kotler, who is a, a rabid pro-Zionist in, in Canada, would describe Israeli settlement, settlements as disputed territories. But here he's describing them as Palestinian settlements in Israel. Um, quite extraordinary sort of uh, inversion of reality there. But let's look at the next section. Is, Israel is a democracy, but it's a flawed democracy, just like the United States. But if I was a dissident Arab Palestinian, would I rather be a dissident in Israel or in Saudi Arabia or Oman or Qatar or any other Arab nation? 
if you're a dissident, you get up on the, in the middle of the public square and denounce the government, where would you rather be? You'd rather be in Israel. It's the only place you're not going to get in trouble. So I guess Shireen Abu Akleh getting shot through the head is, is his idea of if you're a distant, you're safe in Israel. Let's look at the next clip, bearing in mind, I have more to say, but we'll say it, as you said, in extra. If you live on any of these other countries, you're, and you're gay, for example, you can be killed for that. Israel is the only place where you have freedom. If you're a transvestite, if you have other kind of dissonant views, you much rather be in Israel than I, any I, other I place. Get, I, I get that argument, it, but it, go, go ahead, go ahead, you can finish. All right, well, I just wanted to, I just wanted to ask you, well, because, the, 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 that, you know, Israel, the, you know, the, the, um, and, and we need we need to have the same standard for judging Israel as we judge other Arab countries. We should, you know, and Israel, Israel is, is going into the West Bank and killing children is never doing that deliberately. Never. And nobody has ever said it is. Well, a lot of people, have, a lot of people, a lot of people have said it. A lot of people have said it is. But, but, but let me just ask you because I, I just want to focus the in all of those other countries. It is the deliberate policy of those countries to attack and target civilians. Okay. This is for me the most extraordinary clip. I mean, Kennedy has just effectively denied the ethnic cleansing of Palestine that started back in 1948. So Rachel Corrie was not killed deliberately. Shireen Abu Akleh was not killed deliberately. 2,200 people in Gaza were not killed deliberately in 2014. Um, Tom Herndl was not killed deliberately. 78 Palestinians were not killed deliberately since the start of 2023, including 14 children. But if, if you're a transvestite or you're gay, you're okay in, in Israel. Anyway, next clip. Is your argument for why we should send so much money to Israel but not to Ukraine? Well, I mean, the, the, historically, that argument has been that Israel is a, is a model democracy in the Middle East. It's the only democracy in the Middle East. And as a democracy, it's, it's a model for peacekeeping, for, you know, for, um, and uh, there's never been a, a time in history when a democracy has, a, has gone to war with another democracy. So I think our policy in the United States should be to support the the growth of democracies around the world. Um, I, you know, if but, I, but that was I'm the argument for. But that was the argument for for going into invading Iraq. We're going to spread democracy in the Middle East. That's the argument for supporting the Ukrainians, which is the Ukrainians are a democracy well, no, and Russia is an autocracy. There, there's a and Glenn, I agree with you, and I think there. But there, I do think there's a difference between what we did in Iraq, which is imposing a U.S. system which I don't think was really democracy at the point of a gun uh, and, you know, going in at a preemptive war, which we've never done in our history, on a pretext in which we lied to the American public about weapons of mass destruction and, uh, and you know, and our policy of assisting an existing democracy in the Mideast that has had a long relationship with our country and a long and supportive relationship with our country. But you know, I, I think you raised some important points. I think it probably at this point in history, 
um, Israel is, uh, you know, is much better able to take care of itself than it was in the past. The only democracy in the Middle East, I mean, we've heard that for so long and the claims that Israel doesn't attack other countries. Well, I mean, just let, let's look, first of all, at Israel's annexation of the Golan Heights, which is a grave violation of international law. The constant aggression against Syria, we were bombed here two days ago again by Israel. I, I think that's the 18th attack since the beginning of 2023. Um, Kennedy will not uh, comment on whether he condemns uh, Israel's aggression against Syria, um, but also aggression, obviously, in the past against Jordan, against Lebanon, the invasion of Lebanon, um, against Egypt. And yes, you know, we should apply the same standards to Israel. Israel should be brought to justice for the crimes that it has committed against the Palestinians for more than 75 years. He's absolutely right, but I don't think that's what he meant. Um, yeah. So anyway, I just wanted to play out one. Well, look, look Vanessa, Vanessa, uh, we we really are over time at the moment. Sorry. So so if you don't mind, we'll we'll keep that one for extra. Uh, but yeah, uh, did sure. did you just want to end on on this? Yeah, I mean, this was interesting. There were quite a few threads being um, thrown around Twitter uh, following the interview. And this was by Sam Husseini, who is, for me, a, a respected analyst, Middle Eastern analyst. I recommend everyone follow him. So he came up with an interesting idea. He said Glenn's questions were moderate. Kennedy's answers came off like incoherent propaganda. I would also say Kennedy looked very uncomfortable, um, like if Netanyahu were drunk. Arabs want to kill all Jews. No one ever claims Israel kills Palestinians intentionally. It comes off like a purpose of his campaign is to divide people skeptical of COVID propaganda from serious critics of US-Israeli access. I would say what he did in that interview was effectively disappear Palestinians, Syrians don't matter, and foreign policy is, is kind of second tier. Um, to to U.S. policy, it, it was it was a, a bit of a train wreck of an interview, quite honestly. Yeah. Okay. Thirty seconds, if you could. Oh, thank you. Uh, <laughs> no, the the point is, Robert F. Kennedy, he's he's entered the U.S. presidential election, and the, he has been set upon by the Israeli lobby. There's some videos on social media where he is with so high profile race hustling uh, rabbi that uh, is infamous. I won't mention his name because I can't pronounce it. Um, but so they, they've gotten a hold of the Kennedy campaign on the Israeli-Palestine issue, and they will not let go. So he is basically handcuffed now on all things like foreign policy related. He's, he's talking incoherently. He's employing logical fallacies of false equivalency. Yeah. He's completely out of his depth uh, of being able to manage this. And that's what happens when the lobby gets you by the neck. And this, this is going to continue to distort all of his answers on these issues. Well, we're going to have much more to say on that in a couple of minutes uh, in extra if you're a UK column member. But uh, so please join us if you could. But other than that, uh, if you're not able to have a great weekend, we'll see you on Monday. Uh, have a great one. Bye bye.